welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences and their art form that led them to where they are today. Today's episode is episode 49. Holy shit. Next week, 50. Huge milestone. I'm very proud of that. Been doing the show for over a year now. And if you're tuning in every week, I cannot thank you enough. Today's episode is a gigantic, gigantic get for me. I, uh, I had a mental checklist of artists that I would love to talk to when I started doing this show. And many of them are, are ones that are probably going to be really difficult to get or possibly impossible. And this is one of those uh, conversations that I, I had on that list and, you know, didn't know how possible it would really be. And I want to say thank you to Matt Penfield for helping put this together. Today, I am talking to Elijah Blue, full name Elijah Blue Allman. He's the singer of the band Deadsy and the son of Cher and Greg Allman. Really interesting conversation. I've always been very fascinated by Deadsy. I discovered them in 1996 by just coming across a CD at a record store that had a for promotional use only sticker on it. And, um, Corn at the time was like my favorite band, and I saw in the liner notes that Jonathan Davis sang on the record. So I just blindly bought it, not knowing what it was. Turned out to be this record that ended up never actually getting an official release. It got shelved. Then it went on to get shelved a couple more times to eventually it came out in 2002 on DreamWorks. And um, they, put up a follow- they put out a follow-up record in 2006 and broke up pretty shortly after there. Um, they're back together. They have stuff in the works. And this was just such an interesting, cool conversation because Elijah's had a life like uh, no one else I've talked to on the show. It's, it's fascinating. And uh, kind of hearing the whole story about Dead Z and how all that stuff happened, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. So let's give a shout to some sponsors before we get to that conversation. Rootless Coffee. Rootless Coffee Company is a small batch roaster out of Flint, Michigan, making high-end coffee with bags designed by some of the comic industry's rising stars. Collaborating with artists, bands, brands, nonprofits, wrestlers, comedians, and more, Rootless is the punk rock gateway to craft coffee. Easy to understand and delicious roast options. Listeners to this podcast get 20% off their order by using the code HARDTIMES at checkout when they visit rootlesscoffee.com any size any grind any time break free from boring now let's hear it for our other wonderful sponsor discovered magazine discovered is a international print counterculture magazine encompassing the best of music art skateboarding and anything with a punk ethos you can get 10 percent off a yearly subscription using the code first ever when you visit store.dscvrd.co. Their uh, newest issue is actually all about California hardcore. They really uh, shine a spotlight on a lot of the bands that are making it thrive that uh, haven't got the attention they deserve. So that's what makes Discovered so interesting and so cool. So please support them. All right. And uh, lastly, I'll say if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, um, if you wouldn't mind uh, doing that over on Apple or Spotify, or wherever you are enjoying this podcast. And uh, yeah, so that's it. Here is my conversation with Elijah Blue. Enjoy. 
Elijah, this is awesome. I appreciate you uh, giving me some of your time. Uh, this is this is going to be fun. You're, you're Jeremy. Yeah, I'm Jeremy. Nice to meet you. <laughs> it's nice to meet you too. Um, yeah, I think I was just telling you a second ago. Um, uh, my, the manager of my band, who who's super nice, he's close with Matt Pinfield, and uh, and he he was so kind as to reach out on my behalf to talk to you. So shout out Matt Pinfield for for putting this together. Of course, I love you know pin, pin the way we we met a long time ago, but then we got close together during a little sojourn of of uh, addressing chemical issues and wound up in the same environment together for about a 28 day period and and you know it was just he and i and like an ipad locked in a room and you know i feel like it was one, one of the great one of the greater diatribes and 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 dialectics of of music you know of like two dudes in a room with an ipod i'd like to think it was and we had like a stack of like mojo and all like you just had gotten a big like stack of all the the british uh, rock magazines and, um, you know, we, we just, uh, it's like 2004 or something okay. like that. I met him way back, you know, at some of like the original, like corn shows, uh, at Roseland, the Roseland corn shows and like Manson Roseland shows back in like 96, you know, when we were just at our, you know, sort of infancy of, of, of the beginning of dead Z. Yeah, for sure. So. Uh, we could start, I mean, were you, I'm assuming you were born and raised in Los Angeles. Cause I know you spent time in Maine too, right? I was born here, but by the time I was sort of like about seven or eight, I was already kind of going away to like up, up kind of out of Los Angeles up in Ojai. But by the time I was around, like, I would say from eight, eight, like on like eight, 84 on, I was pretty much exclusively school-wise back east um and then also living in in new york city in the in the little you know the 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 when i would come up from air, for air or vacation or whatever you want to call it from being away at school i would be in new york so i caught all that last sort of part of the 80s you know second half of the 80s Stephen Sprouse and you know a little bit of like Warhol and this like a lot of interesting people coming through part of that sort of you know the last part of of, of what was so great about New York in the 80s which I was even as a young kid I was able to absorb a good amount of that up and we lived in Greenwich Village and so that that for me was very cool I always say that like I left here like I was I, I was taken away from Los Angeles for a reason, right? Because I would come back and just see how some of my like peers who were like my peers from when I was like a little kid and how they were kind of coming. And it's like, man, if I would have just been LA and nothing but LA, I don't think I've ever been the person to start a band like the band that I started or think the way that I think or, you know, but obviously that was in the stars. And so fate, fate had other plans for me, but I was out of LA for most of the time from kind of 80, 84, onward until I, you know, came back here in like 98. So it was a good, like 12 years that I was in a really formative time in my life that I was, you know, pretty much exclusively back East. That, okay. So I, that makes me wonder, cause there's parts in this interview that I, I wanted to, to, to pick your brain on. Cause, um, I've always wondered if you had any sort of connection or if you were involved ever in like the punk and hardcore scene at all, like, especially if you were in New York in the eighties, Right. I, it's funny, not, not in its 
well right so i would like listen to murphy's law and like i was into all those bands as a kid in like 85 and you know when i first started getting into punk right like a big part of it was definitely not like a deep dive but like like later i would become really friendly with richie birkenhead and and raganath das ray kappa and blood clot and all the you know i mean i so i i i you know i i went in down a little bit of the like krishna rabbit hole by way of those guys so like i you know i i I, those dudes, that, that, that whole culture would come into my sphere much later. Right. But, but, uh, you know, Richie Birkenhead from into another, obviously he was in youth of today for a while, obviously, you know, who Ray Kappa is and, and, um, my man from Cro-Mags, uh, John, uh, but, but I've always had, um, you know, the, 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 the hardcore and I mean, not just New York, but I, when I think of hardcore, I also think of the roots of hardcore. I think of course of bands like discord and um, you know, a lot of the bands that I think Metallica were very influenced by with, with their right hand and, 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 you know, where the, the guitar started really sounding the way that they did. I, I think that they owe a lot to the Genesis of hardcore with, with, yeah, like discord for me is big, but, but yeah, I don't know if that's the roundabout way of your yeah. question. Those hardcore was a little bit my life as a kid, and then later on, I would, I would, I would come to know those dudes a lot better, and and you know, and I've always respected the mentality and where you know straight edge and and Christian consciousness sort of kind of cross sected. You know that that makes a lot of sense to me. So I mean, I just I understand I understood those dudes I think very well. You know, because because funny enough, it was actually. Uh, just the other day when I was like starting to, uh, you know, deep dive, go back and research a lot of this stuff, seeing, uh, yeah, uh, Richie from into, uh, into another no. saying on brand new love. And I was like, Whoa, that's, yeah. that blew my mind. So yeah, I was it, curious what that was connection the, was. He was definitely during the whole part of like the final era of commencement. I mean, he, he was like a dude who early on, you know, our, our manager who was at the time who was very close with him and had grown up with him forever, like, you know, bouncing things off and ideas off. Like, like Richie gave me the idea to like really lay out. Like I had like the song winners that we have on commencement, like that song was kind of an entirely different structure. And like, there was a few little things on that song that were very pivotal that were like by way of like, when I played the demo for the first time to Richie, he was like, bro, you really should do this, 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 and this. And he would be one of the few people that I would like even, you know, suffer to listen to the advice, <laughs> but, but that it was always great advice. And I mean, you know, it was always, we've always had a good simpatico, you know, and, and he, I eminently res respect him. His band is so phenomenal. I think there's so many bands that have, taken a lot from his band that that are you know that you just you know he has such a, an, an interesting ingredient of of the 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 personalities in the in the band the guitar player pete moses is some like austrian conservatory trained prog genius and you know drew the drummer and you know the, the, the bass player who died unfortunately but they they were all i think really you know, it's, it's a special band. They still play. I know. I mean, but they're, you know, it's, they're, they're an evolution. They're, they're to me like post, they're the post punk. They're the joy division of New York hardcore for, for me, you know, I think that's it's, a fair call. That is a fair call. They brought it into something else, you know, and, and the, his vocals and, you know, that, that kind of, you know, really shrill high vocals, could be like tough like that not not be like kind of glam rock west coast but it was another 
ingredient of that. It's that shrillness that I, that I love about Joe Walsh and that I love about, you know, where, where dudes singing that high and that high register, like can still be like very like, like tough and very, you know, uh, just as esoteric as any of like, you know, the dudes who are singing five, five octaves below. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, awesome. Um, so I was curious when you were, so when you were growing up, what was the first music that you connected with? I mean, I really feel like it was like literally like like it was definitely a result of the dawn of MTV and like watching MTV just come online that one whatever night in 1981 or whatever it was. But Men at Work, dude, was like the first that's the first album that I can remember, like walking into Tower Records on Ventura with like the money in my hand myself and being four, maybe. Like going in there by myself, like with my whoever like waiting in the car for me and like picking out the record. I think I even like bought vinyl and I didn't even own a fucking record player. Like (laughs) that was like, I just like liked it. And I was like, okay, this is that band, that song that I heard. And now I'm going to buy, this is the thing so I can listen to it. And then I like have to go back and get the tape and like, you know, but, but, but men at work cargo was, I think, or both the records, but cargo was the one I bought first. But then quickly that then opened me up to like all the fucking new romantic shit and flock of seagulls and, you know, Gary Newman, who I wasn't really into till later, but I mean, I, that was just in my little, like of all the things that were big in that summer of like 82, you know, that, that was sort of, you know, all the stuff that I was definitely like curated by whatever had popped off on MTV sort of out the gate or like a song on, on the radio that I heard. But but Duran Duran was my first band that I was absolutely fucking like, you know, obsessed with, would drink cranberry juice all day long to make my lips red like Nick Rose. Like, <laughs> like literally, you know, I was, I had like all their little like movies, like of them making the videos and all the little like Duran Duran Rio video that you'd buy and like had the documentary. And, you know, I was just obsessed with Nick Rhodes. And, you know, who I would later meet. And, you know, he's a lovely guy, of course. And, um, uh, yeah, so, but, but you know, my Men at Work is my on, on, on entry point. But, but really, Duran Duran is the first band I was, like, you know, obsessed with. You know? Yeah. It was Cargo, the record that has the safety dance on it. No, car, no that, that's, that's Men Without Hats, which is, that's... that's oh, oh, my God. Okay, also, yeah, I got those confused. But, that's also something I love. Cargo has has um, not who can it be now, but 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 you know, man down under. Do I come? You oh, know, right, 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 the, right, right. The, the other album, I think, the first album has who can it be now and all those type of hits. Um, but but Cargo is like their sophomore album that I think I don't even know. It seems like that's their sophomore album, but that's the one that they really blew up big on. I believe it's got like sure. a big the plane dropping like a net i think it like has them in the net or some like their album or some, some weird like drawn album cover um yeah so what you know i mean that that was my, my entree was just the stuff that i grew best with that was on mtv you know that wasn't like super no i wasn't like into metal yet i mean that, that came shortly thereafter but i mean i started with just new new romantic i guess was the first thing that i was you know obsessed with yeah know? yeah yeah uh, I mean, 
with with your parents being who they are what did you have like the the like rebellious nature of being like i want to listen to get into things that are like so different than like what the music my parents have made did you have anything like that i wasn't being no one was pushing that into my zone really so it wasn't i don't know if how much of it was a reaction because i wasn't i mean I, i for me that was just like like someone's like dad going to work. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was like going to really inform like my taste, but what it more was, was just, you know, I had whatever additional experiences because of that being the context of my life and my everything was, I just had a different set of things that I had each day or did each day or whatever. That was not so orthodox or normal, which, which, which also informed my taste and, inform my choices but no one was ever trying to you know my dad would roll in i'd see him when i was a kid like once every so many moons right he'd come in and play like some music on an album that he just did i think automatically i think we can all fairly say that that you just come into this world like being averse to whatever like first it's like trust with your parents and then it's a version, like no matter what, if it's a food you telling me, to, they're telling me to eat. If it's an album that's yours or someone telling me to listen to, I just don't want to know about it. Like that's, that's sort of what I related to with every friend that I ever, you know, at every each sort of tier of, of my evolution, it was always just like, I don't want to be fucking with anything that my parents are fucking with. It's just not cool. No matter what, you know, I mean, if anything, like seeing some, you know, movie that I thought was cool that might, you know, I mean, that, that, that was more for me, something that I was like, Oh, this is cool. I can, you know, this is, you know, good on you, you know, bravo, good work. Um, but, but, but I was very protective over my musical tastes and like no one, no one was telling, was going to tell me what to do or what I, you know, I was telling everybody at the schoolyard, like you, you listen to this, you know, this is, I had a TV in my bedroom with full cable for that time, probably before anybody else, my age had that, like it was just in my room with the remote, no, no governor, no, no weird little like parental booby traps. Like I just had access to all of it from, you know, five onwards, you know? Sure. So that was also a big thing. And me just being able to, 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 to interface with culture at my own discretion. Right. So. Right. I'm curious. I'm curious. Did you, when you got older, were there things that, that came around? So for example, like, you know, there was a bunch of like my, my mom listened to like country music and like old school country music when I was growing up. And, and I had, I had like no interest in any of that as a kid, but then as I, you know, I'll, you know, got in my late twenties, I was like, Oh shit, Patsy Cline is great. Of course. Of course. There's, I mean, mustard. I mean, forget about like just music, even like mustard, like (laughs) mustard. And then I finally, but I mean, we know how that sort of whole thing goes country music for sure. Like, you know, uh, what's his name? He stopped loving her today. You know, that was a big, I, I finally heard that song one day when I was in Germany and I was like, this is a f- absolute phenomenal masterpiece of a song, George, George Jones. Sure. And that was the song that sort of, oh, oh, and that amazing song that Steve Earle uh, dedicates to Towns Van Zant that he does. And, he, and then I only like the live version that he does. He does a couple, the, the Bluebird Cafe one is amazing, uh, f- uh, Fort Worth Blues, right, by Steve Earle. 
absolutely phenomenal for me it's like it's a, it's not like a like i'll suddenly like be like oh i like that genre it'll be a specific song or a specific something that that then opens me up to the other stuff but it'll be, be because i tune into like a resonance about a specific thing and i'll just be like that's like as heavy as any emotionally as heavy as any metallica song is is uh, sonically heavy right? right so bob dylan is a big one like one day at like you know, 31 or like 30 or 29 or something. I finally like figured out like, Oh, this guy is an absolute genius. Whereas a kid, I was just like, his no, his voice is annoying. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care what he's saying. It sounds like racket, you know? And uh, of course there's things that are meant for specific tears in your life that, that, that will, that, that, that'll occur to you when they do, you know, I guess right. it's just, you're lucky that they occur to you at all. Maybe that's the thing. And there's so many people that are so closed off that they won't allow themselves. I mean, it's also kind of like, or you do it in secret, like the way, you know, Jonesy, Steve Jones always talks about like secretly, like huddled in the back of the bus, listening to journey in Boston records, <laughs> it was a deal breaker. If he got caught with that shit. Right. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, I was curious, what, uh, what was the, I'm sure you went to concerts when, when you were super, super young, but I, I guess, um, what, do you remember the first concert that you were like, yo, I want to go see this person. Uh, right. I, I definitely remember. So my first concert was not, I want to go see, but it was definitely burned in my memory because as I'm coming down the backstage landing, I saw the four of them coming up at me and that would be kiss like 78. So, I mean, and I was like both horrified as a two-year-old looking up at all four of them coming up to go on stage mesmerized but I mean, you know, that it was a gnarly, gnarly moment for me, like a crystalline, crystallizing moment of just, you know, feeling their whole energetic of, 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 of their entire being and aura and where they were in their career at that time. And just, you know, they, 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 they had that about them as I met them at that landing backstage, me with my babysitter, like taking me to pee and just not knowing that these guys are about to walk on stage. And it was just like, whoa, dude. I mean, they were literally, I mean, when, you know, they're six foot, like eight in their stuff. And if you're two, it's, it's like looking at just giants, right? Like tight. So that was my first like show that I remember like, whoa, you know? And, but I mean, the first show that I was like, I want to go see this band. I feel like, I feel like that would have maybe, well, right. I mean, I I think that that's going to be like Guns N' Roses. I mean, that that's after Duran Duran. I mean, well, yeah. Yeah, I didn't start, even in like the 80s, I wasn't, I didn't start seeing a lot of stuff, I think, until like, I would like go to like the reggae concerts in Connecticut, like when I was going to Rumsey. But the first time I was like, I have to go see this was Guns N' Roses for sure. And, And I feel like, that was like Guns N' Roses at um, whatchamacallit, at the Steel Wheels show, where I, where I was like 12, just turned 13, but like I made it a point to, to go. I, I, nothing else is like, you know, I may have seen Duran Duran. I don't even think I did. I, I don't think I saw a lot of concerts until I was like 12. I, I, did a lot, I did a lot when I was a kid. I would see my dad's show. I would then obviously see my mom playing wherever if I was around. But me being like, I got to go see this band because, right, I know why. Because all the bands that I was into 
for that whole period from like, you know, six years old to like 12 was all classic rock was all Zeppelin and the doors. So obviously we won't be seeing any of those bands. So literally I was into a bunch of shit that I wasn't, no one, they weren't playing anytime soon. And (laughs) the first current band that I was into as like a teenage 12 year old tween kid was, you know, Guns N' Roses. And I was on it before anybody was on it. I was on it like right even before they released their shit because my friend was super tight with all of them. And, you know, I, I saw like the Welcome to the, to the Jungle premiere video on MTV. And I was like, dude, this is, I remember coming back to prep school and being like, yo, who else saw this over the break? This shit is sick. Like, and I was like one other kid who had seen it and like was because it was sweet, sweet Child hadn't happened yet. It was just, it was just Welcome to the Jungle. So, then I remember, you know, that being, I mean, obviously that's, I was fucking around with the guitar, but I mean, I would have to say that Slash is why I started playing guitar for sure. Okay. It's, this actually, le- this is a good, uh, a good segue because I had read uh, and uh, put some truth to this because uh, one of the first questions I like to ask musicians is uh, what the first instrument you got was. Is it true that you got your first instrument from Gene Simmons? Yeah, when he, cause you know, he, he was with my mom for a little bit in that like late seventies, like 78 to 80, which is why I was obviously like, like I was at Kiss versus Fan of the Park, the, the movie, that horrible movie that they shot like up in Magic Mountain. Like I was there on set for that. Um, but uh, yeah, he had given me a little Epiphone double cutaway, that little kind of famous one that they now reissue with the little two P90s. And he had given me, a uh, little classical guitar, but I never really did much with it until one day, like the fucking dumb La Bamba movie had come out. Right. <laughs> like, I love that riff. I want to learn that riff. Oh, and I had heard like sunshine of your love on something. I, you know, I, or I think it was even like breakfast club when he's like, man, like when Judd's Judd was, you know, just, just the mouthing of that. I was like, I have to learn that, that riff. I just, I, so that's where my sojourn, my, my, you know, the, 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 this, the dude who kind of was the husband of, of our maid back then, they had come from working for Elvis. They were like in Elvis's weird, like backup band for a second or whatever. They have like a little side thing with him, whatever, but they work for Elvis. And he showed me how to play La Bamba on the guitar and then I was sort of off and running. The 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 the, the whatchamacallit I taught myself, the bit it bit 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 bit. I learned that and I was like, okay, I got the confidence now. I want to learn something better. Then he shows me La Bamba. So I'm like, okay, now I know La Bamba and bitty do beat beat beat. Then I was off and running and would just sit there and learn all the Guns N' Roses stuff, Izzy's stuff and Slash's stuff. And like that's sort of how I learned how to play was by learning all of appetite for destruction and just all day long that's all i would do is just learn all the as best i could play them you know learned a lot of it wrong but learned it the best that i could and finally got it right would learn like duff's bass lines too like i just tried to hack it and figure the whole thing out and that's that's when i started getting like where I could like jam with people and starting to get some feel i mean i learned that feel because slash's feel is so amazing i i always wanted to try to have a little bit of his feel even if it was just with you know the style of i play in the rhythm guitar style i would then play in dead z the the feel mentality i i I looked to 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 slash because it was like a dude who had like a bluesy feel 
but was playing heavy riffs. Just Eddie's Eddie, I think, and, and the only person I've ever heard him say it is was Slash saying about Eddie. It's his feel, right? It's 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 about his bluesy feel. That's what's so great about what Eddie then interfaces in in terms of all of his other shit, the tapping, whatever. At the heart of Eddie was was blues and was feel. Uh, you know, that's, that's and, I, and I'm not like a blues guy, but I mean, I can I, I knew I knew what he meant when he said that. Obviously, totally. And, and so I'm assuming you're like what, like 13 years old during this? I'm 13, 12, 13. No, I'm I'm 11. 12 when i first start playing guitar and like la bamba and whatever i'm like 11 when i learned la bamba so then i'm like off and running and like playing my two little guitars that, that gene simmons had given me and then like i got this little hollow body i forget even the model it's like that little miniature single cutaway florentine cutaway f hole gibson that's got like one p90 in the neck i got that and that then is what I would then like sit and learn everything with without even an amp. I just like could play it and like listen, you know, to it because it's like semi-acoustic. I learned all the Guns N' Roses stuff on that guitar, uh, which I which I no longer have, unfortunately. Um, anyways, but. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, yeah. I was going to ask, uh, do you did you start bands like when you were when you were like a, a teenager? You mentioned like jamming. Like, did you ever have like. Yeah. Like well, me and Alec had a had a band. Me and Alec, who's the drummer in Deadsy, had a band that was my first little band. It was called like the Dead Felchers or the Dead Welchers. Or we thought that Welching was felching, but we didn't know that Welching was like like Welching on a bet. We thought like Welching was what people <laughs> refer to as felching. <laughs> you know, quite disgusting. So we had a Dead Welchers that we that we didn't realize was actually the Dead Felchers, but we had the Dead Welchers, and so. Um, and he had had some other band before that, like called Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd and whatever with this other dude. And so him and the other dude, I joined the band that then became the Dead Welchers. And we'd like play a chick's party and like play 20 seconds of 50 songs and then like stop. And, like, it was literally like that kind of a band, two guitars and drums, no bass. Right. And so that that's what you know that's when i came back to from back east for like a year or two i went to school in santa monica at crossroads i met alec and then we you know i started getting good enough from playing all the guns and roses stuff and getting some feel and playing whatever else was out and Led zeppelin and that you know i was off and running with playing and just self-teaching and so alec and i had that little band that was like maybe my first little like fake band and all oh, right so i had gotten a kramer uh kramer like pacer from 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 richie sambora that was like then i could kind of have a guitar that like i could get a little bit further on right it was like a little you know floyd rose and whatever i that part i, I like obnoxiously was into but i quickly got out of the floyd rose thing but like that was cool for a little bit because you just want to fucking like you know whack off with it as much as you can it doesn't <laughs> And that that part is kind of cool. I would just practice doing the Steve Vai thing of throwing it around my fucking back as much as I could, and I got like really good at that. Like of like you know putting baby powder on like a nylon strap and just having it go around and around and around. Like I would literally do like fifty in a row just to, like show people I could do it. So you know I, I was I was okay but not great. I had like a little amp. There was this amazing kid at military school. This is like I'm like I'm like. 12 years old or 11 years old. I was, I'm, I'm 11 years old with what I'm about to tell you. Right. So I had my little Kramer 
and I bought little GK 250, those little old school Galleon Kruger 250 amps that are were great. They're like built in chorus stereo. I mean, it's a great little practice amp for back then. <clears throat> this dude who I worshipped, who had like a Les Paul custom, loved Randy Rhodes, like could play all the Randy Rhodes shit. So I went and like started kind of like hanging with him and having him teach me shit. And I was like, dude, I'm going to audition for Juilliard. And like, even though I'm only 11, <laughs> I'm going to audition for Juilliard soon. And uh, I really need to learn D by Randy Rhodes. Could you show me? And he showed me D, which I learned. And that was a other, other big advancement forward. Um, and he also sort of knew a little bit of the Paganini thing from the end of Crossroads that, that Steve I plays. And he like, that was a little bit trickier, but he tried to show me a little bit of that. Um, anyways, he, I like worshiped him. He was like a sort of towny kid from like somewhere in like Virginia or whatever, like, you know, Varney glasses and puka shells and like a backwards hat with like a little bit of like, you know, bleach blonde, like, you know, <laughs> for, yeah, for yeah. like, you know, jock kind of dude, like, you know, sort of like Sean Penn and at close range, like tight jeans and like folded down combat boots, like Depp does. And like, a you know, open, open, fucking flannel shirt but the kid shredded on on a fucking les paul custom so i was like i have to get a fucking les paul like not only for slash but i guess it was always like look you get better on this shit and then and then you can get a les paul down the road but i ended up pulling a jack move just i know we're digressing here but i got a steinberger somewhere along the line i, I played one at like guitar center and i was like shocked at how like comfortable and how good it felt but it wasn't cool but like it felt amazing now those headless guitars like there's cool ones that sound great back then the steinbergers they were made out of fucking graphite they weren't even real wood but they fucking were very comfortable to play and they sounded good emg pickups sounded great i had the thing for a while and then I would like, we had this like account at Guitar Center. So I went one day, I left school. I had this whole plan. I had this one chick I knew had a driver's license, Sarah, drive me from Crossroads with my Steinberger to go hawk it out. I had seen a black Les Paul custom <laughs> hanging on the wall for a grand at Guitar Center. This is literally 1989, right? I saw it hanging on the wall. So I went. I traded in my Steinberger for it. And there was like a $400 difference, which I just said, put that on our, on the charge here. It was like my mom's like tour account to get like shit for touring and on the road. But like <laughs> dude, the dude there was like, wanted to do me a solid and he wasn't going to question it. And I was just like, put the rest on the account, bro. And then I left there with this gorgeous 73 fucking black beauty, you know, which was really like my guitar that I did all the early Deadsy shit on. I then was an idiot, like had it painted white, like, you know, as opposed to like making a new guitar that would like are my weird guitars for Deadsy. The, the first thing I did before I had like one built specifically for me was I had Steve McSwain who did all those guitars fucking butcher, which I just didn't understand. Now I understand how horrible it was. Butcher the Les Paul and make it into like, I have pictures of it somewhere. It's all the early, early Deadsy shows like us at the, it's the white one that I'm playing on all like the early shows. Yeah. At, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's that one. So that's a 73 black beauty under all wow. that shit. So, um, you know, I fucked up, I fucked up, right. I should have just, I, you know, but whatever. That's why I was just like, look, I love this guitar. I want it to look like this dude. Can you just do this for me? And then, and then it got stolen because I was like, I want to now change it back to a black beauty. 
and just have it be like whatever that's gonna look like that'll look cooler than shit so but it's gone forever hopefully i, I if anybody has it out there i want it fucking back please the, the <laughs> scumbag from down from down south stole it from my 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 he was like i was having him move some shit for me he copied my my key for the storage or just had it for long enough where he was literally just pillaging the deadsy storage uh, hope he didn't oh, have enough no. steps to take the things that are really valuable which are not name brand like our custom made you know i'm not going to disclose but i'm just saying he, it's, it's in a nondescript location i'm just saying he didn't have enough sense to really see so like the cheap rolling stuff but that thing had the he knew he knew what that thing was obviously had like the deadsy bone like in 3d on the headstock like going vertically not like going across it was like the bone was like vertical like where the old, like, you know, little Les Paul thing was. Anyways, I've now digressed many things off, but, <laughs> but, um, you know, my first real guitar was that I really like loved and cherished. It was like my ride or die was my 73 Black, Black Beauty that I got in 89 after like having like a Kramer and a Steinberger and a whatever. That was like my everything, right? I shaved the back of the neck down. You know, it was, it was a maple a mahogany neck, um, Les Paul, even though I like the maple back ones more, the, the Norland era ones. But, um, you know, it was, I also saw Joe Perry, like with the sh back of his neck, the paint taken off. And I was like, that looks cool. And so, you know, that, that for me, I associated that guitar with like Randy Rhodes, with like Joe Perry, with Slash, even though Slash didn't really play customs, he played standards, but still I knew that the standard was like the, the thing to get. Like, I, you know, I, when I look back, Ro Randy Rhodes was like a bigger thing on me than I realized, I guess that, that period for me was very big. I was very big into getting into metal and Ozzy and like ultimate sin, even though that that's Jake, I was still like into like, you know, I went from punk to like metal. Let me now just shut up and let, let you ask another question, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all super enjoyable. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so, so you started that band with, uh, with, with Alec. Um, did you, did, uh, did that band end up uh, recording at all? Like, I'm curious what your first uh, recording experience was. Playing a few parties, bro. <laughs> where okay. we literally 20 seconds of a song. We learned a couple song and it's the songs in their entirety. We learned Crazy Train. We learned, uh, you know, like Comfortably Numb. It was all covers. We had a couple sure. little, are like, we're like originals, but it was literally like, play this for as long as you want. And then when we're bored, we're just going to stop. <laughs> like, Fair. like, was our original it had like two different parts to it and then we just would play it for a non non-planned out you know uh, uh amount of time and then it would just end and that's how we would do it so so, so i assume that then was uh was deadsy the first band that you had a record you had your like first recording experience band that was like you know me in the studio for real i had been in the studio fucking around with this and that and fucking with someone helping someone with a remix or fucking with keyboards at my buddy's place in new york a friend of mine who was uh you know a big dude in the music guy by the name of mike moore he had a whole setup of synths which is where like in the early 90s i started getting you know turned on like what a juno 106 was and what like a profit five and a jp8 was and what an emu was and you know he was a dude who was making like electric electronic like pop music you know female singer he's doing all the other shit like pet shop boy style he was a good friend of my sister's and he was a pivotal part of me learning about all the electronic side of it what a sequencer is what you know i mean i and i and i had loose knowledge of that shit which you know was then like you know i'm gonna take an ingredient of that i'm gonna take like black sabbath guitars you know 
take some like typo negative kind of shit, you know, Sisters of Mercy kind of goth shit, but some other weird futuristic vision of it where it's really put into some overdrive mode, you know, not really lots of reverb. Like I wanted like tight, tight, like and justice sounded right. I wanted that tightness of, of and justice. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that the first time, the first real recording experience was us making the dead Z demo in 95 where, you know, at, with, with, with Josh Abraham at his, in his mom's garage, which is where his like eight at Mackie console, little like, you know, studio that everyone had back then kind of set up that he had. And that's, you know, we made the, 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 the dead Z demo. Um, Amir from orgy was the engineer many many years prior to there anything amir had already been a big sort of uh, you know dude in, in 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 from from you know the metal scene with rough cut but he had done he did the drums at another location then we took the drums and then i recorded everything else at at josh's ren was in the band nobody else was in the band it was just me and alec making the original four song dead Z demo which then i went back and made a couple more songs for seymour at sire he was like make two more songs for me and we have a deal if i like the songs that was like teenage wildlife bowie cover and a song called this this good night um and uh you know then we the first real then like recording the album style thing was us up in whistler we didn't we didn't like then be like let's right let's go to a studio let's like let's take the goddamn advance and fucking snowboard and smoke pot and fucking record no pro tools i we rented brian adams like studer 24 track had that shit in the living room of our like open floor plan two level cabin up in whistler and nordic estate and would snowboard all day take like 20 bong loads in the morning go snowboard and come home and and work all night and it was actually cool rhythm we got really friendly with kevin key because you know from skinny puppy because foo was our engineer anthony fuvalsic who you know is, was very big in their world with you know david ogilvy and 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 you know kevin's other project download that at that point like in 95 96 he was he you know Dwayne Dwayne from skinny puppy had died and so skinny puppy was all was over for all intents and purposes so you know he was in in kevin was in vancouver with his really dope setup studio he had an amazing studio with a sea of synthesizers and he would come up to whistler you know, and, and there's even a song that, that we did I and mean, we, we could do much better than the one that we did, but it was just, you know, God bless him. He was just trying to, you know, help us out and be a kind of mentor, big brother Svengali, which he absolutely was, you know, lovely guy. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we, we recorded the drums and the bass, some of the bass, but mostly just the drums and the guitar and a lot of the keyboards for like songs like Cruella that was our first real recording experience of like the record. Like we had done little stuff for the demos, but when we went to go to the record, we went right to Whistler and just no pro tools. It was like sequencers and keyboards and tape and a Mackie. And like, we bought a few mics, like a U 47 or whatever. I had like my Marshall in the fucking living room, like with set up with, you know, a little, fort of foam and then alec had his drums set up in like a room down below and we'd like jam on headphones and um you know we we wrote a lot of the shit there even if it was stuff that we didn't record there we wrote a lot of it there um but definitely songs like flowing glower which had already been written but like to me Cru cruella was like the great song that came out of that session 
of like having it, it was written up there. It was recorded up there. You know, that to me was, was a game changer kind of epic type of song that, that, that showed pointed us in another direction. It kind of gave us another heading, right. From this like super slow suicide music that I was like, I just want to make suicide music, like really what music to like kill yourself would sound like. Like, that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted it to be just so absolutely absurd, like a little bit absurdist, you know, even though I was influenced by typo and all those things, I wanted to just to go to like another level of just like, you know, super electronic suicide music. But then a lot of things happened. I started going through a lot of changes and wanting to get into other things and like new romantic. And I started like listening into like lots of just, you know, my, 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 my world was very small in the beginning of dead Z and my criteria and my things had to be this way and had to be that way and had to be this way. And I started getting a lot more flexible with that. Even like how I would sing back then was just so, so like purposefully, you know, unelastic right it was just really like i have to sing in this register only and i'm not gonna go above like a fucking you know one e flat or what you know i was just very dogmatic and in some ways that's definitely served us and in some ways obviously as an artist you can't have that it's good to have confines but we would then go and mix that first part of the record back in la that's when I met Jay. I had Jay come in to do to do the bass because I was just like, I just can't do, you know, Ren hadn't been joined the band yet. And I just felt like a little overloaded with the responsibility of having to be responsible for the keyboards and the guitar and the bass. And I just wanted a little bit of help, a little bit of variety. So, and, you know, enter Jay to do the bass on a lot of those early songs. This isn't even for commencement. This is for Deadsy Deadsy, the sire. Right, Deadsy. right, right. So, um, you know, that's how I, you know, I met, sort of got friendly with 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 john davis you know i mean the, the first night we met I, I i was at energy with him playing the um cruella which we had just mixed and it sounded phenomenal like for the time it just sounded absolutely phenomenal it was like a sonic experience of just massiveness and just you know we were all so proud of it and you know and i played it for john and he was just like oh this is by far my favorite song of all time i mean just right right off Aww. the bat like, about everything this is the all i care about right now so and he like went on a sh radio show that night and was like i just care about this song i just heard by this band called dead z it's the song is called cruella it's all i care about it's all i'm thinking about it's all i'm anything <laughs> so you know that was obviously then the start of a very beautiful friendship and you know very much unconditional support and belief um, probably more than we deserve and, and did deserve. But, you know, I think John is a very pure guy and, you know, if the art you're making is real and authentic, you know, he, I mean, that's the way I am too. It's like, if you're coming hard and you're coming with real shit, I'll back it to the edge of the earth. Right. So, sure. so that's it was, so, it, was new, it was a new ingredient, right? Like there was all that shit happening and we just brought a new ingredient into the equation that no one had thought of. Like, why didn't we fucking think of this? Right. I think that that's what we were in the context of all those bands that summer of 96 unreleased. No one knew about us yet, but you know, we knew they knew that like si we had the sire stamp and that means something kind of cool, especially if like, like sire, of course, sign a lot of bullshit, but all the shit that isn't bullshit, it all means something, right? It's all something significant. It's, it's emblematic of Seymour's ears and him being a genius and just knowing something was cool before anybody else knew. And, you know, so I, 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 I feel like we had a place in that lineage. Unfortunately, at the time he had so many problems that 
with Electra and then leaving Electra and then trying to do it on his own, we then got really kind of caught up, unfortunately, in those delays because of what Sire had to then contend with as a label, right? I mean, he we were slated to come out with Deadsy Deadsy in you know March '97. And then Seymour's like, we, we got to pump the brakes, man. I'm leaving Electra. We're going to get the album out. I'm going to make it up to you guys. Keep recording. Here's some more money, blah, 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 blah. And that was very cool. We got to continue to develop. And, you know, eventually we then would, you know, what eventually became Commencement, is it was, there's really two albums. And we, we, we may do it as a double album because we're going to, you know, remix, remaster, and reissue Commencement even more thoroughly than we just did Phantasmagore. But there's, I want to also separate the two albums. There's Deadsy Deadsy, and then there's Commencement, right? There's a, there's some songs on Commencement that are from Deadsy Deadsy, is how I look at it, right? Like, you know, The Elements, Flowing Glower, Cruella, um, you know, a couple more that I'm not thinking of offhand, but those were not ever supposed to be on, like, Commencement as it were, right? Commencement on its own is like nine or ten songs of its own stuff from its from the sort of post ninety six era right like the song commencement uh you know was the sort of another revelation and that was one of the first songs that we recorded after knowing like le cirque and and commencement were one of the first songs that we had recorded after knowing that our album had got shelved but that we wanted to still record and do some monumental stuff we were living in new york at the time we would come back to la and record those those kind of songs a song at a time because for us dude le cirque took a month to do I mean, it just it's it just involved the programming, the everythinging. It's just it takes a lot with with what we do. It's not none of it's ever fast with us, and obviously that's a complaint of of many. But it just takes what it takes, right? It's just it's very involved. Our shit, definitely. It's, so let me give you a let's let me give you a, a crazy little background with with my connection to how all this worked with uh, with my relationship with Denzi. So basically, I grew up in Burbank, up the street. Right. Uh, up the street from this, uh, from where I grew up, there's a record store called DB Cooper's, and right. uh, I went in there. You know, I, at this point, it's ninety. You know, ninety six. Corn um, at this point you is like samplers in the bin or whatever. The the, the, the Dead Z or Dead Z, the whole album's in the bin. I I I, I yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I get a promo right. copy. I get a promo copy. I thought like I would just go in there and spend hours just like you know looking for anything that had a cool the album button. cover. The one that's got the white bed and no. the white. Uh, yeah, it's got it's got the fold out album artwork. The the square. It's got the yeah. So I see this and I'm like, and I look at it, I'm like, this is a cool cover. I open it up and I read, you know, vocals by Jonathan Davis on on one of the tracks, and I was like, this, right. whoa, like what is this? Right. So so I buy it and uh you know and for people listening you know like that's the loophole where it's like it's a promo copy not for sale but record stores would be able to sell it for a used price considering it used right so i buy i buy this i buy the cd in 96 like a thousand of those that went out maybe something like that right sure it was something like i remember right yeah and also i mean like for you know for for listeners uh this these are things that happen like especially in like the la in la or burbank specifically where all these record labels are it's like you get the intern or maybe the disgruntled employee who's like yo i'm gonna take a box promos had already gone out it got pulled at the last minute bro and that the promos were out because we were on the release schedule march 7th bro it was we were dropping and then like a week before the motherfucker pulls the plug, but it was all, you know, 
was all it was all the fate has its own way of how it works so but yes it was it was the the the, the promo copy of the entire dead sea sire album was out there in the ether for for people to get at it was you know Sorry, you, you go, yeah. Sure. So, and also, you know, uh, you were just mentioning, uh, you were saying, you were talking about Seymour. So for people listening, Seymour Stein, respons- uh, head of Sire, responsible for discovering Madonna, the replacements, fucking... Uh, oh, the, the Bones. I mean, you know, the, the list goes on. I mean, he did, there's some Cure albums that are on his banner. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's it, whatever Remarkable. you think, actually go to the real list, it's like twice as long as that, but it's, it's all the, 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 to me, the groundbreaking artists who really were 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 different. The Smiths, uh, talking uh, heads, <laughs> like heads, because his wife also managed. So they had the management company, and he had Sire the label. So they were like managing them and also signing bands. So you know, he he just was a pivotal, pivotal. You know, the best. He's always been known as having the best years in the business. But I mean, this you know, dude who was in his like at the time late fifties. Like, you know, really sort of um, fay, if I will, <laughs> New York accent was like that he understood my band. I was like shocked. But then I was like, well, of course he does. Right. I mean, but I mean, I, I, he was the only one who got it. I, I met with like 15 people. He was the only one who was like, I hear something here. Go record two more songs for me and we have a deal. You know, he's such a genius and so and a, a beautiful guy. We obviously butt heads a lot over things and we weren't the easiest. Uh, we were totally difficult. But, you know, he he definitely the proof is in his is in his, you know, um, uh, repertoire, obviously. So. All right. So then time goes on and the record then gets a second advanced copy, which I <laughs> right. somehow get my hands on because I'm now I'm working at a record store. So I get the advanced copy. It comes in the slip and that has its commencement, but it has a different track order and a couple extra tracks. Right. It's got like the sweet cover. It's got some new shit on it. Right. Yeah. It opens with commencement as opposed to closing with commencement. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and again, as you mentioned, it's like, you're, you're like, okay, but in the center here, we get like, uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Lake Waramug. Uh, Waramug. Yeah. Elements, uh, all the stuff that was on still, yeah. We were trying to just roll over Dead Z Sire on into what would be then called commencement because we got the idea. We were living in New York right after the, the, the Dead Z Dead Z thing got pulled. We were like, well, we're gonna have to come up with maybe a new album cover or something. I mean, I, we got it, and then we we saw this <laughs> photo of our school, and then I had my boy like put some blood like dripping down. I was just like, that's it. Then later we would have it drawn, but I mean, we had that early on, we, we had that image. And that idea in like summer of 97, for sure. Right. Okay. But would, so, la- would later be the 2002 release. Yeah. So then that doesn't come out. And then it comes out eventually on DreamWorks. Now you guys right. ended up playing uh, your first show at the Roxy. The first real show. There was like first a weird show. pre, you know, Alec wasn't in the band for a second. And we had this weird three piece, no drummer show that we did at Coney Allen high summer 97, where we played like four songs in like a weird, we had this like weird, like amazing keyboard stand that we built for Ben that was all PVC. Um, this is took up the entire stage, but I don't look at that as our first show. Our sure. first was the 99 December five piece myself, the beast Carlton Ren and Alec playing at the Viper room you know, the, the gig that changed the whole thing, the gig, the gig, the, the gig that launched a thousand ships, you know, that, that was really our first show, 
you know, as as the entity of of Dead Z, the five piece, you know, really throwing down how 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 we do. So okay, so I was I was incorrect then. I thought that I thought that the because sh- you I remember seeing you at the Roxy, and I thought that was at least maybe that one was of a the year later our second. Show. Yeah, that was the second show. That okay. was a year later, like almost to the date. A year later, it's like December eighth. Yeah, yeah. two thousand. Right, almost. A, we were trying to make it an anniversary of the previous show, right? Okay. But like, we were, we were, we we had signed the DreamWorks as a result of the Viper Room show. We were also having some delays because you know the whole thing with us was always people were like, "We know this thing is brilliant, but oh god, there's so many ifs and questions, and are people going to understand it? And is it too ahead of its time? And this and that, and they how this have all this shit and these symbols in their own language and the you know, understandable things in the context of the commerce of our business. But, you know, we ran into some of those things. It wasn't just as simple as we're going to sign the band and then put the record out. That's what we thought it was going to be. But look, we then recorded a bunch of other songs. We didn't think we actually had like a great radio song. We didn't have Gramercy yet. We didn't have winners. We didn't have a few of those songs that we would then have on the, on the final DreamWorks release of Commencement. So, you know, that was all, I think, great that we were able to do that. But but yeah, we, we then just started playing shows around LA more consistently after that Roxy show. We started playing, right. But just in terms of our first show, right, it was the Viper Room show. A okay. year before. So, yeah. I mean, what an, I've always thought though, like what an interesting, um, you know, sort of position to be in where it's like you have this cult fan base for a band that hasn't even had oh, right. a record out yet. Samplers were selling on eBay for 80 bucks. I remember magazines calling us freaking out about that. Like we had most anticipated album in, 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 right. We, we were, all right. So wait, just hold on a second. So we finally, the, the, the second iteration of commencement that you're talking about where Seymour calls me up in the, in the like spring of 99 and says, look, I think I can bring Warner brothers on board to share the expenses with me and we can get the record out. I feel horrible. Can we do it? And I'm like, yeah, great. So we started fucking with Warner brothers, started doing photo shoots, started getting the album artwork together, started getting the whole thing together. Um, even had a, you know, pretty, I think Andy Gould was managing us for a second at that time who, you know, manages Rob zombie and, and was the place that, you know, was, was kicking ass at that point. And he had a really good uh, management company at that point, but we had sire still. So Sire gets then right when we're sort of about to figure out what our release date is for that end of third quarter of 99. Seymour gets London FFRR comes in and buys out Seymour for Sire, right? They don't understand Dead Z either, right? So then Warner Brothers is like, look, Sire's out. We can release it with half of the budget you guys were going to get, or we'll give you the whole thing back. And you can own it free and clear with like a point override. And I'm like, I'll take the ladder. I go into Warner Brothers and leave that day with all of the fucking materials, all of the reels, all the everything on two shoulders, me and Ren, four boxes into our Bronco on our shoulders, walking out of the fucking like and making a little bit of a spectacle of it, walking out of the Warner Brothers building with it on each of our shoulders. So but we had already done a bunch of press. So we're alternative press, most anticipated album of, of next year. So we're dropped, but we got all this heat. We got shit selling on eBay for 80 bucks. You know, samplers from the Warner 
supposed drop from, from what would have been the Warner thing. And, you know, we got, we got, we got Kerrang, we got a lot of different stuff in the press and people kind of know this is something that's going to be real. And so we go do the, we then go into rehearsal hardcore for three months to prepare for the show. I, I know we got to play a show. We never played a show. We got to go play a show. We go rehearse for three months straight that entire fall of 99 leading up to the show. So we were, we rehearsed for that as a drop band. My, my bass player is having a nervous breakdown. His girlfriend left him because we got dropped. Like, you know, it's a whole nightmare, but you know, I, I, you know, I get a little, I get, I had a little cash. I had enough for us to kind of like, you know, make it all work, but pay for rehearsal, pay for Carlton's weird Z-tar and, you know, <laughs> all of our weird banners and some, you know, we had the guys from Kickwear making us our, some weird clothes for us to wear, like prototypical Dead Z shit, banners printed out, you know, we, we had enough to do this thing right, you know, and so we do the show as a free agent band, right? And, you know, we have a for sale sign on the curtain before our curtain opens up at the Viper Room. There's a for sale sign there, right? Like a real estate for sale sign, Deadsy. <laughs> the whole thing, I mean, it was it was friends and family and it was people who had heard. I mean, they were like right when the show went on sale, there was, you know, they were getting besieged with just people who had heard about what what it was. But it was also a major part of the guest list was obviously friends and some fame and some you know, massive amount of labels. Every label in town was at the goddamn show. So, you know, we, we ended up then having like, you know, two weeks of, it was right before going away for Christmas and we were worried about losing that steam. So we knew we had to kind of lock that in before we went to the, away the hall, hall, went away for the holidays. What we figured out was the smart move was to bring DreamWorks and the firm and Corn's label elementary together, right? To get all the, you know, the, the, the benefits that would go, with being with Jonathan and the touring and everything and, and with also the, the power of DreamWorks. So that's in the end, the deal that we made was, was elementary and DreamWorks signing us. Right. Um, I was actually curious. So I know that there's a label called witch house, which, uh, was owned. Were you guys managed by that guy, uh, Brian from the firm or which house was my company with Brian, which house was our, imprint because Seymour I was like I want an imprint bro he's like well, I'll give you an imprint you can put whatever stamp you want with the okay. sire logo the witch house was us and we're 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 very much thinking about witch house also uh as that being we're just trying to figure out what entity because you know obviously we're about to release a new record about to um uh, and <laughs> we'll we'll be doing that through obviously our own entity um in 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 the beginning i i don't know then what what we'll decide to do after that but we'll be coming into the marketplace um independently so but yeah which house was our was our was our was our management company for ourselves and also um are going to be our our label that ours would be the first release on like like, like tantamount to nothing with with res sure right? sure so i mean i, I gotta ask like I mean, by the time the record finally comes out, 2002, like, how, I, what kind of feeling did you have? I mean, you've been just dragging this thing up a hill for six def years. Definitely relieved. <clears throat> you know, we, we could have done a much longer campaign than we had done. We didn't, we didn't anticipate that because it did, even though we didn't, like, it didn't pop at radio like we thought it would because we thought that they would be intimidated by us. And we knew how great Gramercy was. We knew it was very futuristic. We knew it 
had everything that you would want to come with, but we also knew that it didn't play by anybody's games, but our own. So I think that was a little bit, maybe of, I don't know if it was resentment from terrestrial radio or what it was, but it was something weird, man. I just remember maybe they were like, you know, these guys have all this stuff and all these people love them and all these bands and this, and, you know, we're not going to just let them through the gate that easily. So, you know, there were certain markets where we did a lot better than others. Of course, you know, big, big, big 10 was really big for us. That was sort of crazy you know we, we were it was our second biggest market was like minneapolis um but you know i i think what was important for the duration of that came campaign was the touring and was us just building our follows building sorry, building our following and you know going whatever it was certified gold or half gold or you know whatever it was i mean back then we it was going on sound scan it wasn't what you shipped anymore but right you know, we were very proud with what commencement did. And it was the perfect, we laid the perfect bed to then come with what would be Phantasmal, which we knew what the name of that record, we, we knew what that was going to be called. And, you know, I, I had been talking with, to Michael Beinhorn about doing it, you know, unfortunately then what happens is DreamWorks get not to get into all this shit, but I'm just saying we, 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 we came in where the industry was dying, obviously. I mean, you know, records were, were being absorbed into other la- record labels were being, were being absorbed into other record labels like dominoes fucking yeah. falling. Goddamn Everything was just cannibalizing yeah. domino competition. You know, it was just falling by the wayside and Geffen being smart. He got out early. He knew where it was headed. He was like, I'm out. So you know, we, 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 they were very proud of what we had done and they knew what we were building. And so by no means was because of just it, because of us having the credibility that we have, what we had done and what we had laid with commencement and the campaign was absolutely in their eyes, like phenomenal for, for then really hitting it out of the fucking park with Phantasmagor. So, you know, unfortunately we, you know, Phantasmagor then comes out several years later and not on DreamWorks, but I mean, my attitude is like this, dude. Those albums are still fucking futuristic. I'm sorry. You know what I'm saying? I mean, those albums are still not of their time. I don't think they ever will be because it doesn't, they don't work on linear time. I always used to say, Dead Z is adjacent. It's not about futuristic. That's the wrong word. We are in an adjacent dimension to this one. So it will never be on par with this linear unfolding. And that will always work to our advantage however we choose to engage it now we put it to sleep for a lot of years because i just thought the more in the future that we release the better the more that people will have ears to be able to hear what this is and i think we don't have to go over the many things that have now come to pass that i think galvanize what we were doing then that now makes sense of that i mean remember no one there was no keyboard players in any bands except for like maybe manson or whatever i mean there was no one using the sort of new romantic kind of gary newman keyboards you know you just had bands like like interpol coming along after commencement was released or sort of contemporaneous contemporaneous to commencement i mean that was a band obviously that i that i loved then and love now and always will love um but uh you know, uh, we, we were loners in, 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 on the journey of, 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 of our, you know, musical expeditionary ship. Right. I mean, we, sure. we, we, were, we were alone. We were, even though we had kindred spirits, they weren't doing what we were doing. They were doing stuff that was a lot safer and, or they had already made, had proof of concept in the marketplace. Right. I mean, corn was in that same boat 
and they just kept at it until it eventually fucking went. I mean, they, they had that kind of support of like, they kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. And radio finally came to them on the third album. Radio came in on the third fucking album, but, their other their first two albums are were were were, were platinum were, were gold and or platinum, <clears throat> but I think it, it's Metallica had the same story. I mean, you know, with not only shit shit from the music business, also being a being a an impediment, <laughs> definitely problems on the inside of the band, <laughs> being an impediment to us having to have been that steadfast with just staying at it, staying at it until we knocked it over. So, but then again. I don't know if one of us maybe would have died. I, I, I just don't know. I mean, we don't, we don't, I don't go down those roads with anything. All I know is that, you know, we, our music is still dope that we're writing now. I think doper than it's ever been because in my mind and in our mind, it's still like a virgin, like it's, it's gone out in culture, but we haven't really fully popped the cherry yet. Like, like Denzi comes out tomorrow. It's going to be a brand new band for a lot of people. Right. There's a lot of people who will know what's up, but I'm just saying, you know, and, and, and not just from the incidental aspect of that. I mean, the music itself, I, I, I'm only interested in making music that is of its, of its time in the way of where, you know, I'm not interested in, in whatever nostalgic aspect, because now there's however many years elapsed. I'm, I'm interested in the part of Deadsy that is only ever in the eternal present. So I feel like that is automatic. I mean, a lot of these things, we don't really have to make decisions. We just do what we do. And I think the result, but I, I want to really sort of see, you know, I mean, of, of five dudes who still, you know, um, ha have their looks and still have their <laughs> their youth you know i mean we'd be dumb to not go and take a nice shot and and look we've been writing the record and recording it for the last three years and it's you know i, I absolutely adore it in a way that i've never adored stuff that we've done before it's a lot different in terms of what we're doing but it's still a hundred percent what we are it's i mean it's it's a hundred percent true to the, the the songwriting ecosystem and the songwriting universe that I only think was partially open to us, that to me now is opened up fully into full bloom. That's what I'm excited about in terms of what we are bringing to the table with Subterfuge, right? Which is the next Dead Z album. Um, not to get into all that media training style and start to mention everything for my own selfish purposes, but no, I get it. Man. That's, I, don't, that's exciting. I don't look at this. If, if we go out there and do shit, I don't look at us as a legacy band. I look at us as this weird anomaly that just exists outside the rules of the normal system. I don't know. No, just because everything, everything about what we do is, is the, in the, in its essence is that it's all outside of the rules. Everything that we've ever done exists outside of that rule structure, which is why it's been so compelling to people and so intimidating to fucking other people. And, you know, I mean, it, 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 that, that's how it breeds. It is a wild, wild entity that, that uses us five people as its fodder, but it is its own entity that exists. And so it will have its own plans <clears throat> and we and our job is just to feed it. I feel it. Yeah. Uh, let me, uh, let me, let me ask you. So there's a few, like just me nerd, nerd things. What, what was the connection to that made you want to cover uh, a Sebado song? You know, like that's, that's an interesting that's, choice. That's like, that's like Ren and I like early nineties growing up with all the sub pop shit. That's just an, ode. I've always loved the song. That's just an ode to our, 
teenage youth up in Maine, at, up at high school. And, you know, we were just cranking all those albums, Smash Your Head Against the Punk Rock and Sebado Can Kill You. And, um, you know, uh, oh, no, no, that's, sorry, that's Fucking Mo's. Fucking Mo's Gonna Kill You. So, fuck, yeah, that, a lot of the formative bands for us is like Sebado, Fucking Mo's, um, you know, just shit that's super left to center before the world was onto it. And, and, you know, the songwriting and the attitude and the sort of lo-fi, mid-fi thing, you know, that, that the mid-fi, lo-fi thing wasn't, I, I got hip, more hip to sort of that experimental ways of recording. We're utilizing more of those sort of textures in the newer stuff. But I mean, I was always about like really high fidelity, but the attitude of those guys, I really love. So I just love the song, you know, and I just thought, I just, I follow my instincts, man. So I just, I mean, it's a fantastic cover. It's, it really like it, the song, you know, you, you gave it a, a, such a new, beautiful life, uh, with that cover. Like I've always liked the original, but, but that cover is, is I've always thought it was just so fantastic. That's and then Yeah. That's the one that Richie sings back up on. And, you know, I wanted to do that kind of a little bit of like a beach boys style vocal thing at the ending. I mean, that's the thing we, we, we have, we get a little distracted sometimes that we have so many musical influences. I think it's good to stay within a certain dogma that keeps us very defined, but we can't help ourselves. But like, I want to make like a fucking Duran Duran song. No, I want to make like a fucking let's cover seven. Like we also are all over the place, but I think there's still a cohesion regardless of how far we can detract. There's still always a cohesion that always will make it deadsy. And that's just, when 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 the guitars and the vocals and the drums and the keyboards are there that it has no choice but to be dead z i mean it just it can't help itself and i think any band that's lucky enough to have imagery that's that's that specific that five seconds of it comes on and someone knows what it is i think that that's you know you're, you've done your job you know i agree Cool, man. Well, hey, I wrap up every show with this question and uh the last question i'd like to ask you is uh when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing that you had been working so hard towards? Right. I mean, you're, you're talking about just in life or more in the context of the band? Because uh, Yeah, what, well, well mu- yeah, musically, I guess. Right. So, I mean, I'll tell you, man, like, I remember the it was early on, but it was the first time, even, even as early on as it was, we had still been through a lot. So, like, end of the summer, 96, we went up to Bearsville or Dreamland Studios up in upstate New York to go do like Lake Warmog, The Elements. Um, we recorded a, a, an old school for the first Deadsy Deadsy album. We had recorded a cover of a great old L.A. band, Community FK, their song Antipop. Antipop, you know, yeah. They're, they're an amazing band. And, and he, you know, Patrick Mott is a huge, huge influence for me. And I, someone I, I, I'm very fond of and he's a lovely guy. Um, but uh, yeah, I remember like after being done with that session and we had been up, you know, Whistler and I had gone through all this shit even before I got the record deal. I had, a, I was with, you know, my girlfriend at the time had this gnarly drug problem. And I was like, you know, all the stuff in the beginning, beginning part of Deadsy was just trial by fire. I made the, de- the made the Deadsy demo, like with my girlfriend in rehab, I was like going to rehab every day after the studio with the Deadsy demo and like checking on her and shit. And then I was like, got to get her out of LA to have her try to, recuperate and i took her to london i went and lived in london for a month my mom was living in london i went and met up with her in london before i had any you know deal but fast forward you know after we did whistler after we came to la and then mixed all the first Deadsy Deadsy songs and then we went to you know 
do the session up in upstate New York in, in the early fall, late summer of 96. And that was the, the, the session that was going to be the final session where we would be done with Deadsy Deadsy recording and mixed. It would be fucking done and we'd be ready to fucking master. And so at the end of that session, I remember listening to the stuff on a car, on a, on a, on a car drive, just driving around, you know, um, uh, Woodstock, New York. And I just like, started just bawling my eyes out, letting out just so much like, God, man, like little did I know what still lay ahead. But I mean, that was a, 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 a definitely a place, a, 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 a tear, a landing where I, where I just took a look back at the previous year and was at least knowing like, look, we, we, we finished it. Right. I mean, we, that was, we had finished Deadsy Deadsy, like that the sire Deadsy was done. Right. We just had to go master with Howie Weinberg. But that night, I just remembered that being very like, what? Well, and because I, I thought, like, when I first got the deal with Sire, I was like, oh, dude, we're going to, you know, 11 months and we're fucking, you know, not only released, but we'll be rehearsed and ready to tour. And what, we, you know, it's all going to be good. And dude, it's like, I thought, I had no idea what lay ahead of me. But I mean, you know, life has its own plans for you and you just have to show up and deal with it the best you can. So, you know, that, that was, but that was a palpable first moment of me, like, like, uh, cause I always just, you know, my whole life and just being in boarding school and all the shit that I always had to do, I always have had to just keep such a fucking stiff upper lip. And I never really, you know, always sort of stuff shit down. And so that was a moment of, of cathartic exhalation and a moment of relief. Right. You know, so that, that to me, Immediately when you said it, that's the one that came into my mind. So that's the one I'm telling you. You know, I love it. I love it. I appreciate you sharing that. That's uh, yeah. Those moments of just getting it, it's just like it's done. Like it's the relief. It's it's you know, I, I get it. I mean, regardless of how long it took for people to finally be able to ingest it. Yeah, the plan with Sire was to release the Deadsy Deadsy thing. If we sold thirty thousand copies and built a little base, great. Like that, it was literally the expectations were nil. It was just like another cool sire release right we didn't know that everybody you know then was going to come into the mix and love the band and corn and then limp biscuit shows up and fred is then a huge champion even before he's anybody and you know it's you know i mean i, I literally was there the day that the, the the limp dudes got off the like winnebago to leor you know to leor's house dj lethal and we're just trying to like do their first rehearsal of like whatever songs they had and then, you know, they were in New York recording. And so I was then in New York and that's when we interfaced with them. You know, it, it's been a long, strange trip, but I, you know, we, we, we've met so many beautiful people and look, I mean, you know, for this generation of dudes, we're still young dudes, not for 1940s baby boomers, but for, you know, this generation, you know, you're in your forties and you're healthy. You're a young guy still, you know I mean? I'm, 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 I'm a young old guy, not, or, or an old, <laughs> or not an old young guy. So um, no, I, I, no. I get it. And let me, I mean, I apologize if any of this is selfish to say, but I'll say from an outside perspective, having a band that feels like at the, t you know, it's like, this feels like mine. Like I discovered this band, the record's not even out yet. I know about it. You know, like there's an interesting story to have that. Um, like there's very few bands that get to have that specific of an interesting story and the fact that you have that is special in and of itself you know so i appreciate the music that you provide i mean and, that, and look and that's in the great tradition of punk rock and how it was for the entire everything from the ramones to when nirvana broke we know that all that great shit 
happened just that same way. You know, it was college or it was underground or it was mixtapes or basement tapes and dudes making tapes and shit. Like, I feel like we got to have a little bit of that and it was by accident too. Right. But I mean, that's the way it was supposed to go down. And, you know, again, fate, fate does its thing, you know, and you just gotta, like Raghunath said on, on Joe Rogan, you know, Ray Kappa, he's like, you know, you gotta look at karma is the airplane that's moving right from one destination to another. And then your free will is what you do on that plane while it's moving. Right. So like karma is going to have its way with you and fate, but there's still, you can affect that flight. You know, maybe you push the fucking flight pilot down and you affect him to like crash. Maybe you have the pilot pull up and he goes higher than you thought, but you know, you can affect affect karma, but you have to also just be ready to deal with karma However, it you have to also ride the horse the direction it's going, you know, all all the all the dumb shit. But I, I feel like we we we've done that the best that we can, and you know, more more will be revealed. I think our best work is ahead of us. I think I always used to say back then, you know, this is music of 2015, 2020, 2022. This is not really music of now. We're like reaching into the fucking fog of the future and pulling something into the present to just have that sort of you know, for, for someone to feel the tension of that, uh, of, of that difference, right. Uh, that, that, that bringing something that shouldn't be in its time, but doing it anyways, that, that idea to me is very appealing, but I also like the idea of being exactly in and of your time. So that to me is more the theme of what we're doing now is really trying to just be absolutely in the power of the present moment and of in, in, in the concurrent, you know, Absolutely. Well, Elijah, this has been a fucking blast. I, I, I appreciate you taking some time and hanging out with me today. Good stuff, man. All right, so bud. good talk soon. And I appreciate it. You, 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 you were great and uh, all good. And, and um, you know, I, I, ho- I hope to get you the music early once we have some things to start getting to people. And, oh, I'd love um, that. I'd love that. Yeah. Take care, Elijah. <laughs> Later. That's our show. Thank you so much to Elijah Blue for hanging out and thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. And I will see you next week for episode 50. Guest announced shortly. Have yourself a beautiful week. <laughs>